Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The Jazz Loft Radio Series is funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. At the Jazz Loft, somebody was always teaching something. And it was usually Hall Overton doing the teaching. This is Overton helping sax player Freddie Greenwell master a monk tune. It was recorded, unobtrusively, by photographer W. Eugene Smith, who wired the whole loft building for sound and who occupied the studio right on the other side of the wall. Overton was a college teacher of classical music by day. By night, he was living, teaching, and playing jazz piano at the jazz loft. He rented the back portion of the third floor, and this tall, gentle man from the Midwest was a magnet. Many musicians started to gravitate towards that place because he was the guy that had the real credentials. The late Teddy Charles, vibraphonist, spent many nights at the jazz loft over several years in the 50s, and he and Overton were good friends. Not only a serious classical composer on the faculty at Juilliard, but it taught many, many jazz musicians who used to come down there. It was like a pilgrimage to come down there and learn from Hall, study with Hall Overton, who was my early mentor. Overton's day job was teaching at the Juilliard School, the center of all classical music activity, the most reputable school in the country at the time. He taught a course there called L&M, Literature and Materials of Music. He'd been a nonconformist from the minute he started at Juilliard, and Teddy Charles picked up on it right away. That was probably in the 40s, 46. I was going to the school there in the percussion department. Jazz was in such disfavor, they called us dance musicians. So we used to have to sneak into the studios on Saturday. You know, we'd get a piano and sets of drums and so forth, and actually a vibraphone. We'd sneak in and start having jam sessions, and Hall just wandered into one of those things, sat and started playing with us. And of course, we hit it off right away. Cut to a decade later, Hall and Teddy Charles still friends, still jamming. But the place to jam and to teach was now the jazz law. given day, or night is more like it, Hall was working there. And as he was a classical composer and teacher who played and taught jazz, he used his studio for both. He'd used the loft to coach classical players in a performance of his own viola sonata. That's violist Walter Trampler and pianist Lucy Green, their long rehearsal captured on tape. And he held private composition and theory classes there in the loft. One of his most devoted students was Carmen Moore, just out of college. Moore showed musical talent at Ohio State, and one of his teachers said, go to New York. I've got just a guy for you, a guy called Hall Overton. Oddly, just the same thing had happened to Overton himself. 
in high school, it was his uh, teacher that said, get out of here. Oh. The late Nancy Overton was married to Hall through the 50s and 60s. As soon as he graduated, he should get out and go to, like, Chicago Musical College or someplace. But it was her inspiration that really made him say he can't find what he needed there. So Hall came to New York, and because of his skill and intelligence, work found him, including the lessons he gave to Carmen Moore. And Hall, great guy that he was, great big old six-plus, whatever-foot guy from the farms of Michigan, a serious intellectual, but who didn't exude it. He exuded more jazz pianist. I called him, and he said, sure, come on over, you know. He'd sit there and kind of, like, work with you. Overton gave lessons to then-aspiring composer Alvin Singleton. I think I would get tired before he did. The lessons would just go on and on, and, and at that time he was a serious smoker, and he would have the longest ash of anybody I'd ever seen. I mean, it's, it's, it just wouldn't fall, and then it would fall completely. <laughs> Hall just had me uh, write immediately. I think the very first lesson, he said, now next week I want you to write a melody that goes all, starts at the bottom and goes all the way to the top. Composer Steve Reich went to work with Overton in the loft in 1957. Oh, and the melody that goes stops the top goes all the way to the bottom. The melody that goes up, and, then, and he just drew these shapes. And I, and I said, well, hold on. I said, we haven't studied anything yet. He said, how can I start composing? I don't have enough technique. He said, you'll never have enough technique. And you write these pieces. <laughs> and he was a guru on the jazz side, too. Jazz musicians took a shine to him because he was such a natural guy. Jazz pianist and arranger, the late Dick Katz. He acted like a jazz cat. I mean, he didn't act like uh, a classical guy who's down with jazz. He acted like one of the fellows, which he was. And he always had this cigarette dangling from his mouth. Studying composition with Hall, that was really the first time I had even attempted to study composition. Alto sax player Lee Konitz. And at one point I was going to all four years of his literature and material. However, of course, was uh, presented, and uh, he uh, was a great uh, composer and uh, teacher. Like many others of every musical persuasion, Lee Konitz followed Overton from the jazz loft to Juilliard and back again to the loft. I just uh, remember what a, a nice feeling it was to be able to go into this space, which was protected in some way, sound-wise, because uh, I had never had that for myself. I never really rented a loft and the things that most musicians who have to make a sound eventually do. It was a floor through of a loft, three flights up. And it was great because since it was a commercial district, you could play till all crazy hours and wouldn't bother anybody. And that's exactly what they did. Nancy Overton. And all kinds of people came by. Salvador Dali was having a presentation there. And the guy who used to play the Lone Ranger on the radio was a jazz buff. He was there. And Thelonious, I thought, wow, how more diverse can you get than this? Through all the people in and out and the sometimes party atmosphere, Paul talked, played, and gave lessons. Doris Duke, the billionaires, uh, was going around with a, a jazz musician who studied with Hall. And so Doris wanted to learn about jazz, too, and she decided to study with him. 
And she asked Hall to come out to her, one of her mansions, you know, with a chauffeur and the whole business. And Hall said, no, anybody who studies with me <laughs> comes to my studio. So here comes Doris and her chauffeur-driven limo onto 6th Avenue in the Flower District, the seedy part of town, and uh, has to sort of kick the drunks out of the door stoop going up all those grungy stairs with the graffiti and the whole thing. So she kept that up for a while. He was a big guy, very easygoing. Never, ever saw him get mad. The late Teddy Charles. And he really was sincere in wanting to see you develop yourself as a musician, given whatever talent you had. Practically everybody in New York went to Hall sooner or later, and they all learned something. Well, like who? Do you remember names of people who went? Miles, and um, I think Ornette Coleman played up there. Mingus used to go up there with us, and uh, Art Blakey. Just about everybody who was on the scene at that time. Hall started teaching. My lesson was at four. Carmen Moore. I remember falling asleep while he was teaching me. But uh, he had two upright pianos right next to each other. And one day, at the end of my lesson, there's a knock at the door, so I put on my coat, and I was getting ready to go, and uh, he opens the door, and there's Thelonious Monk with a great big, dark, long coat. And uh, Hall says, oh, oh Thelonious, I'd uh, like you to meet my student, Carmen Moore. And he just, ah, you know, he, he just grunt. He was, I think he was not talking in those days. Off they went to the piano. So I wasn't leaving at that point. I was, you know, so I just closed the door and leaned up against it there, you know, and watched these guys do it. And they went right to work. And they were preparing for the famous big band concerts at Town Hall. Hall sat down at the left-hand piano and, as usual, lit up his cigarette and then just left it hanging in his mouth, burning and dropping all over his chest. Thelonious sat down at the piano on the right, and Hall just started playing, and he had his charts up there in front of him, and Thelonious started playing along with him, and Hall seemed to just understand that that was the deal. There was no English spoken, only music spoken here. He had lots of looks, and that's how he and Hall communicated. a finger up or all these little nuances. It just communicated perfectly. And now, live from the courtyard of the New School for Social Research in New York City, Channel 13 brings you Jazz is Music. Once he'd established himself as a mentor and friend to jazz players, Paul Overton started to host a television series on public TV. Good evening. My name is Paul Overton, and I'm pleased to welcome you once again to the new school and to the second in a series of concerts. And because Overton was from the Loft family, you might say, Eugene Smith had the television on in the Loft whenever the program was broadcast, and his tape recorder running to capture the sound. 
Al and Zood, I wonder if you'd come over here for a minute now. It was a chance for Overton to put his friends on TV. All right, this would be, I think, very interesting to hear. Why don't you play a little blues starting out this way? And to talk about some of his thoughts and ideas about the music. That was the blues, very definitely. All right, this sort of mixture of two plus three plus two plus one, the odd and the even, is a very strong characteristic of contemporary music in general. Same thing could be true, could be said about Bartok or Stravinsky, the same kind of concept. It was unheard of at the time, a Juilliard classical music instructor running a jazz program. Very contemporary way of thinking, but he uses... Definitely uh, jazz and uh, classical music were, were separate. There was definitely uptown and downtown. And Hall just um, was one of the great unifiers. He really understood uh, how classical jazz was, you know. I mean, he understood the racist block that was put up against that music. Otherwise, it would have been accepted immediately as a major new art form. He got that. I think it was always a problem in the United States with jazz, I think because it was a black music, basically. Alvin Singleton. And then classical music was thought of as more legitimate. And Hall Overton was one of the ones who just talked about music. He was uh, aware and very, very angry about any kind of racism in this country, whatever. And he told me about times he, like someone wouldn't pick up Oscar Pettiford, like a, some taxi driver. And he said he ran two blocks and caught the taxi driver and opened his door. And, and there's this monster big guy from Michigan, you know. Oscar Pettiford put his uh, bass in and off he went. Also, you got the feeling when you were around Hall that you were around somebody who was really important. There was something regal about him. With all that, it's hard to believe that Hall Overton's name and history aren't better known. But it may have been in his nature, say Carmen Moore and Dick Katz. He never bragged about himself or his stuff or forced his work on anybody or anything like that. He didn't promote himself. He didn't write books. I think it did bother him that he wasn't recognized. Nancy Overton. Like at Juilliard, he should have gotten a full professorship. And he really deserved. And people kept saying, they want to study composition with Mr. Overton. And they'd say, well, no, he's, he'll be teaching L&M literature and materials and not composition. And they never could figure out why. Maybe because Hall Overton dared to live in two musical worlds. People were scratching their heads. Well, now, uh, what are you? Are you a jazz pianist or are you this classical composer or Juilliard or are you in the clubs or whatever? Man, I'm in both. Paul Overton, when he is remembered, is thought of as someone who treasured and advanced the status and the art of jazz, and especially the work of Thelonious Monk, arranging Monk's music for the big band concerts in 1959 and 1964. All that work happened in the jazz loft. But what also happened there is that Hall Overton played piano. And when he played Monk tunes himself, late at night, relaxed, those were sometimes the best moments. He had a particular affinity for Monk. Here's part of a jam session on the Monk tune Friday the 13th, Hall at the Piano.
to just get lost in the piano and, and, uh, and all of that. I thought he was a wonderful jazz player. dangling cigarettes that killed him. It was the drink. The doctor said, well, you can't have anything alcohol anymore, and he quit like that, but it was too late. When Hall was in the hospital, I went to visit him there. Lee Konitz. I remember just standing uh, next to his bed, just holding his hand, uh, not really speaking too much, but just kind of being together. I felt that close to him. But he kept wondering, what about the studio? And we knew that if he had recovered, that he would never be able to make those stairs again. So um, we had to try to jolly him along a little bit about keeping that. It was a wonderful place of inspiration. Overton died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1972 at age 52. Without Eugene Smith's jazz loft tapes, there would be much less tangible evidence of Hall Overton's role, or his piano playing for that matter. Did Hall's good friend Teddy Charles know the tape was running? No. Some of us probably would have been upset if we thought so. Because we were just going in and having these really freewheeling swing and jam sessions. Really cooking. You know, when, when nobody's around and you're just among yourselves, that's when the best jazz happened. You don't care how many mistakes, you take chances on things. And that was one of Hall Overton's theories about what the real excitement of jazz is taking chances, whether you make it or not. You try for something, even if it doesn't happen. And that's what makes jazz really exciting. Overton, like more than a few others, found his freewheeling joy on an upright piano in one particular old building in New York. This is the Jazz Loft radio series. In the next episode, Before the Loft, In the years after World War II, New York was the place to be for jazz players who were discovering the riches of 52nd Street as they settled into the scene. The very first night I went to 52nd Street and heard Charlie Parker, Miles Davis. I mean, unbelievable. That was for openers. Hello, New York. And what took you so long to get here? That's coming up in Episode 5. Thanks to Sam Stevenson and to the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. For WNYC's Jazz Loft Radio Series, I'm Sarah Fishko. series was funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts.